as uh, we open up God's word, I think it's important that we ask God to help us to understand it, and not just uh, with our heads, but with our hearts, so that we'll put it into practice. So please join with me as I lead in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we've got your word and we pray that you'll help us to trust it. Uh, We ask for understanding uh, to grapple with these parables and we pray that we won't treat it as something remote but that you'll see that it actually speaks to us uh, today. Please give us soft hearts so that as we hear your word, as we hear what it means to us, uh, we'll respond well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, No doubt you've heard the saying or the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. Um, I I don't know exactly where it came from. I did a little bit of research. Some suggest that it's a a gambling kind of thing. Some suggest that it was uh, a statement that one boxer said to another boxer who was terrified of fighting him. Uh, Back it up by putting your money where your mouth is. That is, there'll be a wager and the winner will take that wager. Uh, We use it fairly commonly, I think, of not just saying you're believing something or that you'll do something, but actually doing it, putting it into practice, believing it for real. Uh, You might have heard the story about a guy called Charles Blondin. Uh, Charles Blondin was a famous tightrope walker over a century ago, and uh, he was most famous for having walked across Niagara Falls. Now, I've never been across to Niagara Falls. I've seen pictures, and I know it's a long way across. And uh, I think it's a marvel they could even string a rope from one side to the other to be able to walk across, let alone do this. And Charles Blondin created uh, quite a, um, a, a lot of presence by gathering people to come and watch this man walk right across from one side to the other. Not only did he do it himself, Uh, but he was able to wheel a wheelbarrow across. And not only a wheelbarrow, but a wheelbarrow carrying around about 70 or 80 kilos was wheeled across by him. And it's said that he said to the crowds one day, who believes that I can wheel somebody across in my wheelbarrow? And everybody's cheering and saying, yeah, 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 I believe it, I believe it. So who will get in with me? In other words, put your money where your mouth is. Do you really believe this? Well, what Jesus is going to be saying to religious leaders of his day, I think in modern uh, English is, guys, put your money where your mouth is. You say you've got a relationship with God, demonstrate it. Show it for real. It's quite a challenging passage. Uh, We pick it up at the start when Jesus has entered into the temple courts and you see there at the beginning that the chief priests and the elders of the people come and ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Tell us who gave you the authority to do this. Now, what's he talking about? Well, think back to the previous chapter. He's just come into Jerusalem. People have been praising this one who comes in on a donkey. They've been laying down palm branches. They've been singing Hosanna. Uh, This is the one who is the son of David. He's healed people. People have come to him in the temple and he's been able to heal them from their sickness. Uh, He tossed over the tables of those exchanging money. Uh, You see him also cursing a fig tree and very quickly it withers and dies. And the chief priests and the elders, in other words, those for whom the temple was kind of their home, 
This was their home turf. Are saying to Jesus, what right do you have to do what you do? I mean, who are you really? Or, or maybe a, another way of saying it is, who do you think you are? Well, Jesus responds with a question. And often as they seek to uh, trap Jesus with the questions, Jesus kind of flips it and responds with a counter question as he does here. And he asks them about John's baptism. Now, the baptism that he's talking about is the baptism of John the Baptist. And uh, I don't know if you can remember back way, way, way back to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist comes and he's at the Jordan River and he's calling upon people to be baptised. Now, people saw that John was a, a prophet. He was a prophetic figure. And he was calling people to repent, to turn back to God and to be cleansed of their sins. And if you just flip back for a minute, well, if you haven't got a Bible there, that's okay. I'll just read out a little bit. People come and confess their sins to, uh, to, to John the Baptist and they're baptised by him in the Jordan River. But then John in chapter 3 verse 7 sees Pharisees and Sadducees, that is religious leaders, coming to where he was baptising. And he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John's saying, if you're going to be baptised, then you need to repent to repent is to do a U-turn, to turn around and stop living for yourself and start living for God. Repent of your sin and worship God. And John the Baptist says that he has come to bring about this baptism of repentance. But we discover as we look on in this story and throughout the gospel that John is really the curtain raiser for the main event. John is the one who's preparing the way for the Lord who comes after him. John is getting people ready to meet God. And so when Jesus is asking, John's baptism, who, who is it from? By what authority, if you like, did John do these things? Well, they know that if they answer that he's a prophet, then the implication is that he is the prophet who comes before the Lord. And so they don't answer. Well, Jesus doesn't not answer. He goes on to tell three stories and they overlap and they kind of build on each other. And I think basically the message that he's giving is literally put your money where your mouth is. Um, let's see each one in turn. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. I'm in verse 28. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way to righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe. So this story that Jesus tells 
of one who says, yeah, I, I will follow, and then doesn't, and one who says, nah, I don't want to, and then does, they reply saying the right response is to follow. It doesn't matter too much on the order. It, it's, it's where you end up that matters. And just to say you're going to do something and then not do it. I mean, it reminds me of a, um, a cartoon I saw once, um, which was uh, you know, one of these husband-wife cartoons. And uh, the husband has just been asked if he would fix the cupboard. And he says, I told you last year I would fix the cupboard. You don't have to remind me every 12 months. Um, married people laugh because that's kind of the way it works, isn't it? Um, I've forgotten the point. I always forget the point. No. See, it's what you do that really matters, not what you say you're going to do. And the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they do not respond to John and they are not responding to Jesus. And so Jesus says... What's actually going on is you religious heavyweights, you're missing out. And those who are getting in are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, I think we probably need to revise the terms to get the weight of what Jesus is saying. Uh, I lived in Canberra, the home of tax collectors. All right? We had tax collectors in our church, many of them. And we tend to think that it's good to have an accountant who's reliable and trustworthy. Um, it's what it is to be accountable, isn't it? You've got to have uh, someone who knows what they're doing. Well, in those days, it was considered to be a bit of a traitor. The prostitutes, well, that's fairly self-explanatory. But somebody suggested that I was reading here on this during the week that maybe because of how overwhelmingly ubiquitous pornography is that, that, that people aren't terribly shocked by the idea of prostitution these days anyway. So to say that a tax collector and a prostitute enter into the, the kingdom of God before the religious leaders isn't that dramatic. Well, let's change it up a little bit. Maybe Jesus is saying something like the methamphetamine dealer, the ice dealer, and the person convicted of paedophilia. Now we're offended, aren't we? Now we see that people don't deserve to be treated well. Just got to look at the response of what happens in prisons to people who are convicted of paedophilia and you'll see that it's offensive. And so it is. But Jesus is saying, God came to save the worst of people. And what does he require? That people repent and believe. And so we read on to the next parable. Uh, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, that's the last time we hear anything about the wall, the wine press and the watchtower. And you might be thinking, why these specific details? I think it recalls a very important and for the Jewish people famous passage in the book of Isaiah. I'll just take you there and, and listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 5. We don't know for sure that Jesus had this in mind, but for the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees, 
people who spent their time studying the scriptures, you'd think they'd have a pretty good idea when Jesus started to use this language. Let me read to you from Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it. He cut out a wine press as well. But he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only, only bad fruit. So that, of course, is Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel. And Israel ended up being judged because they were a fruitless nation. But it's not just the people. It's actually the leaders of the people that are held to account. So going back to Isaiah 3, the Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. And these are God's words. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is on your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. So if this is in mind, then Jesus is telling a, a parable that was familiar to them. And they ought to listen up at this point. Because just as Isaiah had critiqued the state of Israel and particularly its leaders, so Jesus is doing the same thing now to the chief priests, to the elders, and we read the Pharisees a little later. So they're obviously there as well. This parable is a little different, however. When the harvest time comes, back in Matthew 21, <clears throat> he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed the other, and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Okay, so Jesus has told the story and he's asked the question. What would be the right response in these circumstances? And here's their reply. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. You kind of think, well, if they knew of Isaiah 5 and 3, they'd probably forgotten it because they've landed themselves right in the story. In fact, as you read on and... and uh, down to verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him because they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Ever heard that phrase, self-fulfilling prophecy? There it is. They enter into the story, a story where they reject the servants one after another, and then they kill the son. And that's exactly what they're doing. And by the way, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, together with the Herodians, didn't like each other. I mean, if you were running an election campaign, they would all be competing with one another. 
and yet they've got a common enemy, Jesus. And when you understand who Jesus is, the son of the vineyard owner, the son of God, you see what a travesty it is. But Jesus said this is the way it was going to be. Back in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. And it is marvellous in our eyes. That's a quote from Psalm 118. We've, we've seen it before and we've seen another quote from Psalm 119 just in the previous chapter when they came into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The, the word for cornerstone there is literally in the original, the head of the corner. And there's a little bit of debate as to whether it's the cornerstone that you, you, you place down the bottom as a kind of foundation that you build around, or whether it's the capstone, the, the one that you put up the top to kind of hold everything in place. It's difficult to know exactly, but both these ideas would work. It's interesting, I, I looked up capstone uh, on on my computer just in the last week and I had to go very deep to find anything about stones at all and it was interesting because it's become a common metaphor for the last subject that people do in courses to do a capstone subject and the capstone subject is the one that's meant to at least kind of build on everything that you've learnt and maybe hold it together whether it's the cornerstone that you line up everything around and build on, or whether it's the capstone that holds everything in place, what we discover when we look at this is Jesus is saying he is pretty important. <coughs> Jesus is this stone that the builders rejected and he's become the most important stone in the building. And here are these people rejecting the stone. And they need to heed Jesus' warning because he says, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. See, the stone is the right centrepiece of relating to God. But if you don't get that, you're going to stumble over it or it's going to fall on you and crush you. In other words, Jesus is saying, in effect, that how they relate to the son in the story will determine whether they're in a right relationship with God in God's kingdom or whether they come under the judgment of God and miss out. Well, there's one more story, one more parable and um, this one's kind of got some similarities, but it's a little bit different. Uh, the beginning of chapter 22, Jesus again spoke in parables saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. You can see the son kind of mentioned again here. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Uh, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. 
My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Now, now wedding banquets are a big deal. I've married quite a lot of people. Um, I only live with one of them, but I've married a lot of people, right? Men and women, and uh, to each other, right? And one of the things about weddings and, and wedding banquets these days is you can pay a small fortune. And can you imagine a situation where, uh, and this is probably fairly conservative, and you might think it's excessive, and I do, uh, they've booked a wedding venue, it's going to cost $150 a head, and there's 120 people coming to this, and the save the date, and all these people say they're going to come, and then you send out the final reminder, it's something to do with the gift registry and other things, and you're alarmed because you think I've already spent 150, I'm not going to, okay, I will buy a gift, and then you just find any excuse you can not to turn up. It's a pretty offensive thing to do to the parents of the bride and groom, isn't it? And yet this is the story. Um, but it's not just that they refuse to come. That's, that's the soft thing. Reading on, verse 4, Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Um, we understand that there's a big hoo-ha with weddings now, but in that day... It might be a banquet that took place over the course of a whole week. It's a pretty big, impressive thing. But they paid no attention and they went off. One to his field, another to his business. In other words, they just found excuses not to go to the wedding banquet. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. So the wedding's getting closer uh, you get a courier, uh, you, you send out the courier with the reminder, the date is approaching, the, the wedding's ready, um, you wouldn't want to miss it. And you shoot them. You know the phrase, don't you? Don't shoot the messenger. Well, it's not ultimately the messenger, is it? It's the one that the messenger is bringing the message from. See, they, they've rejected the king. And what is the king's response? Well, the king was enraged. And he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. Now, I think we need to be careful about pinning down all the details here. Because it's hard to keep a wedding banquet fresh and the food hot while you're marshalling an army to go and kill all the people in the city and then come back and, like, don't worry too much um, about the logic and the details. Their reaction, having been invited to this wedding, is obscene because ultimately they've turned their back on the king whose kingdom it is. And so he says to his servants... Um, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. 
Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited but few are chosen. This is a parable in two parts. The first part is the invitation has gone out and it's to be accepted. And the people who've accepted it first need to put their money where their mouth is and come to the wedding banquet instead of excuses. But then the second part of this is amongst those who come, they need to come the right way. And there is a man who's not wearing wedding clothes. And he's asked why he's not wearing wedding clothes. And he says, that's right, nothing. He's got nothing to say. He's culpable. Now, there are some who go into the background of this and they'll argue the fact that in the culture, people would have provided wedding clothes that would have been appropriate for them to wear. And he's obviously not responded to the grace of being given these wedding clothes. I don't know. But I do know that he knows that it's wrong. Now, I've got a friend called Norm. That's his real name, by the way. Norm was from Wellington. Uh, he's now a missionary in northern Kenya with tribal people there. But uh, when Norm came to university, uh, he came as a carpenter to do an arts degree. And he wore overalls. Uh, hard yakka, King G type overalls. That's all he wore. I, mean, I don't know what else he wore, sorry. That's not a comment on underwear. The, the, the picture was you never saw Norm without overalls. And after we finished university, Fiona and I were invited to Norm's wedding. And, uh, you know, the, the story was, is Norm going to turn up in overalls? And so there we are. We, we're seated in the church and um, the, the people are starting to come in and the, the, the bridal... Uh, party, the men kind of gather up the front, there's the groomsmen, they've got their, their suits and ties on, and then in comes Norm, in overalls. And Norm stands up the front in his overalls, uh, as his bride-to-be is walked down the aisle with her father. And as he gives her to Norm, Norm takes off his overalls and has a matching suit and tie underneath. Now, that's got nothing to do with this story, but it's a cool story, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's a lovely story. Norm wearing his, his suit under his overalls. This guy basically is showing contempt for the one who gives the invitation. I mean, we all know that there are certain things you don't wear to a wedding. I mean, if you've been invited to the wedding and you're playing rugby the morning of, you don't just turn up in your footy boots and the mud all over you and, and the torn head. You know, you, you kind of pretty yourself up. That's what you do. So what's Jesus doing here? He's, he's saying in a number of ways with a number of stories, some that are connected to the Old Testament, uh, that the Israelite religious leaders are in great danger. They're in danger because even though they had been given invitation after invitation, even though God had sent the prophets to them again and again and again, even though he sent along John the Baptist to get people ready, now that he's turned up in his own son Jesus... 
the decision is to be made, isn't it? How are you going to respond? And from what we've seen and what we will go on to see, they look for a way to arrest him and to kill him. Now, I think there's a warning in this for you and for me. That is, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to being right with God, it's not just how we start that matters. It's how we continue. It's how we finish. It's not sufficient to go out to the front at a beach mission and profess faith in Christ if I go away from that and ignore that and that has no part of my life and I have nothing to do with God from then on. We're not saved by decisions. We're saved by Christ. And we need to look to Christ. We need to realise that Christ is God's saviour, his own son. And we need to be people that are commended in these stories, those who bear fruit, those who repent and believe. You see it there in, in chapter 21 and verse 32. This is the response that we are to make and it's the response that we're always to make. Repent and believe in him. Every time we hear the word of God, every time we open our Bibles, every time we're in our salt groups and we're discussing together, the response that God wants from us is to repent and believe. How am I not living in relationship with God? And how does this lead me to put my trust in the Saviour, Jesus? Because Jesus has come to save. The story here of a wedding banquet, the imagery of a wedding banquet, the imagery of a vineyard, they're, they're lush images, they're, they're festive occasions. They're of, of joy and celebration. Jesus has come to bring salvation. But if we turn aside from that, if we get distracted from that, if we think other things are more important, then we are in the same danger that these religious leaders were in. One of the things I've been hearing about um, over the last year or so uh, is of notable, famous Christians doing what they call deconstructing their faith. And you may have heard of some of these. Some of these stories are, are very powerful and they are very sad. Sometimes they come out over Twitter or Facebook and other places. That is a person who has been living for Jesus, who's been uh, involved in Christian ministry, those who've um, encouraged other people to put their trust in God so they no longer believe. Um, there are some very famous people in, in this boat, but I, I don't want to mention the famous names so much as to say, where is the hope when there is doubt? How can you move forward if you're struggling? What can you do if you're not as convinced as you were? Well, the Bible encourages us to ask questions. It encourages us to turn to his word, to God's word, and not be afraid. When I left home and went to university, I'd grown up in a Christian family, 
And I went through periods of doubt and struggle, wondering whether I really believed these things to be true or whether I just inherited them from my parents, from my Sunday school, from my youth group, or from a, a significant other in my life. And so how did we proceed? Well, I'm very grateful that my minister encouraged me to go back and to read the Bible again for myself. There's nothing to fear in coming to Jesus and asking the questions. I think that the deconstruction type questions have probably two parts to them. One is, is it true? And perhaps more significant for many people is, is it good and is it good for me? But the second part of that, is it good for me, is actually to assume that good for you is the ultimate good. And I think that's where our society has gone. And it's no surprise when I think that the ultimate good needs to be the ultimate good for me. And Jesus competes for the number one position. That is, he wants to be central. He wants to be king. He wants to make the decisions in my life. He wants to direct me that I might go through a period of struggle and doubt. And so as I grapple with issues of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus says and whether Jesus backs that up and whether he's reliable and whether I can trust Jesus with my life, I need to also be prepared to ask questions of myself. Not just to doubt the faith, but maybe to doubt myself. Maybe... I'm being distracted. Maybe I'm the one who needs to reconsider things. Now, I know that there are, there are issues here, and it might be that for some of you, you are going through a period of time where, where it's very hard to be Christian. And you may be worrying about some of these matters. If that's the case, I'd love to talk with you personally. I'd love to explore this and church ought to be a safe place to be able to grapple with doubts and struggles. But for some of us, it's not going to be the, the, the struggle of, of doubt that is the problem. For some of us, it's going to be the distraction of things in this world. Remember back to chapter 13, Jesus told some other parables about the sowing of the seed. And he said that things like the deceptiveness of wealth are going to creep in and they're going to strangle the faith out of people. And so, friends, let's examine our lives. Let's examine our hearts. Let's ask the question whether Jesus does have centre place. And if we need to repent, to turn back and, and place Jesus in the centre, let's do that. And if there are struggles and issues in the process, then don't fear that. Work those things through. Well, I did say I'd have a time um, to take questions, and um, it's only time, I think, for us to sing a song. Uh, but if you've got questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you afterwards, or if you want to email me through any questions, my email's on the front of this handout. You're welcome to do that. So, Musos, if you want to jump up.